Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. We're joined by Bill Crystal, founder and editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard magazine. Bill, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Eric? Doing fine. Thank you. Now, we've talked on this podcast uh, many times about how the future of Donald Trump as president is wrapped up in what happens with the Mueller investigation. Uh, This week, we had the first significant steps in that investigation. What do you make of him? What I make of it is that we don't know much of what's going on in the black box of the Mueller investigation. And I've seen these fairly up close over the years, uh, sometimes with friends of mine involved, unfortunately. And, and, uh, you know, I've had my own opinions about the merits of some of these special counsels. But the one thing I've learned is, you know, that you get you get a serious person like Robert Mueller, who was head of the FBI for a decade, you get a bunch of very experienced prosecutors, uh, they're going to have a strategy. And second, you know, guessing from the outside that, gee, that's all they have, or gee, this is really going to blow up in the next week or two. It's really a fool's errand. So we don't know. I mean, clearly they're taking it seriously. They didn't just look into it and decide, well, gee, there's nothing there. So I would be worried if I were Donald Trump, whether it gets to whether it gets beyond the indictment of a few associates of the president, uh, whether it really can prove knowing collaboration with Russia as opposed to just kind of opportunistic, uh, you know, it's okay with them if the Russians release some emails. You know, that's whether it's low level staff or higher level staff at the campaign, whether there's obstruction of justice with respect to Comey. Those are all things we'll find out. But it's a serious investigation. I think he's moving fast. That's the other thing I will say. I, I kind of I've never really bought the argument that this is going to take years. And Mueller's style, I think, is very direct. He's hired a lot of people. They're clearly making progress. Some of it we don't know about. I've got to think we'll know you know, where things stand in, in, in two, three, four months. And what do you make, not of the indictments, but of the guilty plea of George Papadopoulos, somebody who most of us have not heard of before, um, but who seemed to set the bar that um, if you aren't completely forthcoming with the FBI investigators, uh, that you could have trouble to face? Right. Well, that's always been a strategy of uh, prosecutors. And uh, if, if, you know, it's the cover up that kills you, not the crime. And uh, it's not clear that he did anything wrong. But he did lie to the FBI, which is not a trivial thing or seems to have or he, he pled guilty to doing so. So presumably he did. He's a little fish. But, you know, often these investigations begin with little fish. Where Watergate had that character. And uh, so the notion among some that, well, who, who's he and what does he matter? Well, maybe he doesn't matter, but maybe there are questions now about the attorney general's veracity and what happens when he's, in the, when he's interrogated about what he told Donald Trump at different times about what Russia was doing. I mean, look, I think the, what we know is Russia interfered in the election. Russia was basically inclined to help Trump more than Clinton, certainly, or help Trump at the expense of Clinton, though they were happy to just sow discord and disarray as well. And that the Trump campaign, it seems pretty clear, uh, then and frankly now, even now in retrospect, didn't have big problems with Russia interfering. They may not have colluded directly with Russia. That's one of the que- that's the question I suppose that the special counsel is looking at. But you know, they certainly didn't, you know, weren't appalled by the thought that a foreign and hostile power was interfering in our election. Donald Trump on the stump welcomed, invited Russia to release emails and so forth. So I think that's already pretty bad, actually, in terms of behavior, uh, whether it gets to criminality and impeachment and that kind of thing is a whole different question. To what extent do you think the uh, Democratic response to the indictments has been tempered by Tony Podesta's involvement with the Manafort crew? I don't 
think much. I mean, I mean, obviously, this investigation will lead where it leads, and it may drag in Democrats as well as Republicans. And then there's a whole separate issue of Hillary Clinton and her own behavior and her campaign's behavior and the Democratic National Committee. But uh, I, look, these the president of the United States. Um, uh, there was interference apparently on his behalf as a candidate by a foreign power. That's the core issue. The rest of it will go where it goes. Although it is a remarkable story this week, kind of not out of the blue, but uh, remarkable that Donna Brazil owned up to the fact that the DNC did become a wholly owned subsidiary of Clinton, Inc. Yeah, early. I mean, the national committees always become pretty much wholly owned subsidiaries of the campaigns that the RNC was with Trump once he was nominated or once he was a clinch nomination. What seems to be, I haven't read all the details of what Donna Brazil has written, but I, 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 what seems amazing is that way back in 2015, they were already in effect a subsidiary of the Clinton campaign or working with the Clinton campaign in a way that was uh, disadvantageous to the Sanders campaign, whether that's in any way criminal or just, you know, uh, a choice that we can criticize by the Democratic National Committee is, is it's entirely another question whether they violated election campaign laws, I suppose, would be the question, or or other things, whether they misrepresented, that that seems to be the case. And some 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 people misrepresented some things. But again, they that whether they did so as a legal, you know, whether that's a, a legally uh, questionable matter or just a politically questionable matter, we don't know. So that's that's the Democrats are in some disarray, too. Republicans can take plenty of comfort from that. But honestly, it's not going to compare to the magnitude of a investigation of the president of the United States. And the thing the Republicans wanted to focus on this week and kept as much focus as they could was on tax cuts, tax reform. What do you make of the bill and what do you make of the political situation for Republicans, the imperative to, to actually do something? You know, they all feel they have to pass tax reform because they failed on Obamacare. So the biggest thing that's pushing tax reform is really less the merits of the legislation and more the sense that they just have to do something. That that will take you fairly far in life. If you have to do something, you often do it. You know, if you feel you have to do it, if your political survival is at stake. On the other hand, it's actually also a real piece of legislation. It's not just a symbolic, hey, we accomplished something thing. And, you know, this legislation will get debated on the merits and people will look carefully look at the tax tables and the provisions to see if they're benefited or not. Whole groups, uh, you know, housing builders and there are many, many groups who will have things at stake here. Tax bills are complicated. I think the notion that they can just ram it through in two weeks in the House, which is what they're now talking about. I find that pretty fanciful. I mean, or if they do it this way, I think they could really run a backlash sort of like with Obamacare when they get to the Senate and the whole thing could start to come apart. I, if I were running this, I might take longer and try to really make sure I have kind of a stable coalition that can get this thing through. Very hard to do it on a narrow partisan basis. They could get some Democrats, but again, that would require some change in attitude, I think, by the Republican leadership. So I guess I think people are overstating somewhat the odds of passage. I don't think it's, you know, I think it's more like 50-50 than two or three to one, which is kind of what by the conventional wisdom in Washington is. Um, and then people need to look at the merits. I mean, is it really, I, I think a lot of the changes, there's sort of changes in one direction that get nullified by changes in another direction. The idea that our economy is going to be changed much or middle-class incomes are going to be changed much by trading off in a sense, the standard an increased standard deduction for reduced exemptions and, and caps on, on, uh, mortgage interest deduction and so forth. It all strikes me as being fairly marginal. Really. I think the People who are proponents of the bill would say the corporate tax cut really can 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 gin up the economy and be good for the economy short term and longer term. I'm I'm open to that. Corporate tax is problematic in all kinds of ways, and our tax rate is too high. Uh, on the other hand, it's a political matter selling a 
big corporate tax cut and other tax measures that do some of which benefit the wealthy uh, in this in a context where capital and the wealthy have done well over the last 15 years and middle working class families have you know not really had seen much increase if any in their disposable income I think that could be a little a little tough so I think this will be a more complicated process than people think and um, and and this is one where senators and congressmen really will have to make judgments based on their districts and states based on their own sort of views of the relative importance of helping out families versus helping corporate, you know, uh, reducing corporate burdens and so forth. It's not one where I think you can just snap your fingers and say, hey, party loyalty, you know, get into line. So one of the most contentious issues, it seems, in the in the tax bill is the question of whether to maintain the deduction for state and local taxes. It always seemed to me that that was a natural issue for Republicans to go after in that that deduction basically is a a federal supplement to big government programs at the state level. Yeah, that's been the kind of conservative critique of it. And I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it. The counter argument, which isn't ridiculous, is you shouldn't pay taxes twice and on income. You shouldn't be twice taxed twice on the same income. And if you've, you 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 should be able to deduct one set of taxes from your other set of taxes. Um, but the practical effect of that is that it helps uh, reduce taxes for the higher tax states, which tend to be Democratic states. On the other hand, they also have a lot of Republican congressmen, states like New York and Pennsylvania and California. They're very big states, typically, a lot, some of them. And, um, you know, they're going to have a problem voting for this bill. Maybe they'll do some, you know, modified version of it. I guess they're ready to have a cap uh, on the deduction as opposed to a, a total abolition of the deduction. I think that's in the draft, or at least they've talked about that. But, um, again, this is one of these, there are a lot of moving parts at once, I guess is what I would say. And, uh, um, again, I think we underestimate, you get so much into the inside baseball on this, and we all do. One forgets it sort of matters whether the public basically thinks it's a good idea or not. I mean, one of the things that killed Obamacare repeal and replace was just that all the polls showed it was very unpopular. So if you were a wavering congressman or senator, you thought, well, gee, what's, you know, it's, it's, what's the point of going out on a limb for something that the public isn't even for? We've done such a bad job of, they did do such a bad job of explaining it. I think on taxes, they're better organized. They've got some big interest groups on their side. There'll be an advertising campaign. The president's much more engaged. He kind of has a better feel for this kind of issue. Um, so, you know, I, I think they have a better chance at it. But I, I, would, I would say public opinion does matter on this. Now, you mentioned inside baseball, which brings us to baseball. And um, yes. I'm wondering, I, I wasn't able to stay up. Is there still a game going on maybe in the 72nd? Ah, what a wimp. I mean, geez, well, <laughs> you actually have to work putting out the magazine where some of us as editor-at-large can just float around the country and, you know, give speeches and uh, contribute some things to the magazine, do this do this podcast, and not not worry about making sure the copy is exactly correct in, in the third article in the uh, in the magazine. You so the, the copy I, I has feel to be- I feel for you having to having to get your rest, but uh, but I I didn't, so I stayed up and watched Houston clinch, which was nice. I was rooting for Houston. I think most people probably were. They've never won a World Series, and um, it was really a heck of a series. I mean, we've had in 2014 with Bumgarner pitching the seventh, you know, what four or five innings, I think, of scoreless ball, winning for San Francisco in the seventh game on was it one day rest or two days rest. And then in 2016 with the fantastic Cubs Indians seven game series. And now with another fantastic seven game series, we've had three really uh, unusually good seven game series within four years. So the way I put it, maybe I've said this before is our politics may be getting worse, but our uh, baseball is getting better. 
And I think the only thing that was missing from this series was extra innings in the seventh game. Yes, that's right. The, the seventh game was not the most exciting game. And that often happens. You, know, you have these really exciting fifth or sixth games. And then the seventh game turns out to be a fairly routine, you know, game as this one was. It had its moments. L.A. looked like it was coming back. Uh, Morton, the Houston pitcher, had a slightly rocky start. It looked like they might go right at him. And then he settled down. Or he, he was lights out the last three innings. So it was it was fun to watch. You should try some time to, you know, take a little break there from <laughs> – you're the slave drivers in the office, Richard Starr and Robert Messenger, and you know, get out and about, watch some of it, watch a little bit of America's pastime. I'll try to do that. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from the Great Courses Plus. Cybersecurity has been a major topic of concern lately. Did you know that the only surefire way of preventing an outsider from turning your laptop or cell phone into a microphone? is by taking the battery out. That's one of the things I've learned about digital threats and how to protect myself from cybercrime from the Great Courses Plus series, Thinking About Cybersecurity, From Cybercrime to Cyber Warfare. One of the lectures you should check out is titled The Five Gateways of Internet Vulnerability. In it, you will take a closer look at the cyber domain's inherent vulnerability to cyber threats. Professor Rosenzweig explains the key five gateways to this vulnerability, including the Internet's ability to allow users to act in ways they can't in the physical world and operate without international boundaries. There's so much to explore with The Great Courses Plus. I have unlimited video access to brilliant, engaging professors, and I can learn more about so many different topics— history, science, politics, even hobbies like photography and chess. I can watch the videos whenever I want from any device, and now I can stream the audio to listen along with the Great Courses Plus app. I want you to experience the Great Courses Plus, too. They're offering our listeners an entire free month of unlimited access to all their lectures, but you need to sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. Get started today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for this week's Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.